Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown. Where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and a culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music, the tall tales, true stories, and current goings-on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter and swim buck-naked in summer. Welcome to episode 47 of the Brown County Hour. This is Carrie Ray. And Dave Seastrom, along with the rest of the crew. February is the month of romance, and we'll be addressing this subject along with our usual array of music and essays. Our musical guest is Travers Marks, and we'll listen to the interview and hear some of his original music. We'll also listen to a discussion about the Gay-Straight Alliance in Brown County High School with Patricia Cronkey. Carrie Ray brings us another for a song. Jeff Tryon shares his essay on The Man Who Logged Brown County. Rick Fettig brings us a feature this month. And Steve Grubb shares his knowledge about the once prolific chestnut trees. We'll mention some details about the Brown County Music Celebration, along with the Maple Syrup Festival. And our own Dave Seastrom shares his story of love and romance. We begin the show with our interview with Travers Marks, and we'll hear his original tune, The End of the World. We also have another Carrie Ray for a song, and we'll close this segment with a mention of the Brown County Music Celebration and the Maple Syrup Festival. pleasure to introduce Travers Marks this evening. Thanks for coming in, Travis. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, we just listened to four original tunes and really enjoyed your music, but I understand that you're also a player with uh, Zion Crossroads, right? Yeah, I normally perform with the band. Talk about some of your musical influence. Where Where did some of this stuff come from? I like folk music of all kinds whether it's reggae, blues, hillbilly, bluegrass, uh, just seems to be, I gravitate towards the folk music. Well, I heard a little uh, reggae. I heard some Grateful Dead, maybe. Uh, well, I definitely saw a lot of dead shows, and there has to be some influence from that. So, Trav, I couldn't help but notice uh, when you came in and got your guitar out to start uh, warming up a little bit. It's a guild which is very cool. And uh, I also noticed that you're a right-handed dude playing a left-handed guitar, and the guitar actually is a little worse for wear for it as well. You know, I've seen a lot of guys, a lot of lefties, turn a guitar upside down and play it, uh, but I don't, I don't think I've ever quite seen this. What's, so what's the story on this axe? Uh, a really dear friend of mine gave me that. Dan Bradley was his name. He took it to many uh, Elf Fest and uh, other outdoor parties, and partied all night and played left-handed and left it by the campfire and uh, he had it for 30 years and at one point he gave it to me and he said you know it's broken and I don't really play it anymore 
and I thought it could be a good campfire guitar. And I had a really nice Gibson J100 guitar at the time that I you know, loved, and it's a great guitar. And I took it to uh, Bennett, who's a uh, luthier here in the area, a really good guy. About a year and a half later, he called me and said it was done. And so I went over and picked it up, and when I picked it up, he said, well, this, this really sounds pretty good. I was like, okay. And I played it a little bit, so it sounds pretty nice. And I took it home, and for the next two weeks, I, I never got my Gibson out of its case. And I was like, well, there you have it. Yeah. So I sold the Gibson to a good friend of mine, and he still plays it. I've played that guitar since. Yeah, and it only took a year and a half to get it there, yeah. right? Which in luthier years is not a lot no, of time. No, that's not much time. <laughs> Blink of an eye. It's six yeah. weeks. Yeah, that's, that's right. exactly six weeks. So let's let's talk about Zion Crossroads. This is a band that a lot of us are familiar with. And so we play the uh, first Tuesday of the month usually at the Pine Room, and it's not really the whole band. It's uh, me and whoever can make it, uh, but Sands, drummer and bass player. Is this the Zion trio yeah. that you were talking or about? Or it could be the Zion solo or duo, oh, okay. depending on right. the, the Zion whatever things at the like that. Yeah. But we play as a full band at the Porthole uh, first Friday of every month. And of course, that's a fine place to get pizza and catfish. There you go. Three pieces of catfish yeah, so that can, one can yeah. only finish if they don't finish their fries, according to Dave. That's That's been my experience. <laughs> you might as well just not order the fries if you're going to go with a three-piece catfish dinner good to know yeah. folks make a note of that will you you yeah. can still eat the hush puppies though <laughs> it's, uh, no comment so so a quick question and uh, forgive me I, I actually haven't been out to hear the full band uh, at this point so this is my first introduction to your music which has just been great to listen to the full band uh, does it keep kind of an acoustic vibe or do you put down this guild and pick up an electric and and uh, kind of go rock it a little bit more I would say it's an electric feel I have a harmonica player and another guitar player is playing electric guitar and bass and drums so it's pretty much an electric feel but I've varied myself from playing an acoustic guitar with the band and never having it quite work out to an electric guitar where I wasn't really happy with it and then I just recently got a guitar that seems to work just perfectly and and folks will have to come out to see you to yeah. see exactly how that works <laughs> right yeah so is this a strong uh, reggae influence on this band? Oh, I wouldn't say strong. Uh, you know, we call it foul reggae when we play it. But uh -huh. yeah, it's I mean, it's still strong, I guess, in spirit. So you have a Facebook page, and that would be mm -hmm. under your name, Travis yeah. Marks. Yeah. There's a website, and it's updated, ziancrossroads.com. Updated means that if I want to find out when you're playing, I don't go there to find out. Probably not. A uh, Facebook page of mine would probably tell you. Yeah, okay. Tell me uh, a little bit. I'm, I'm always, of course, as a songwriter, interested in hearing about other songwriters' process, you know, whether songs just kind of come and crash into your mind or if you kind of sit down with impetus and go, all right, I'm going to write right now or kind of what your typical is that way well i would probably say the the former and it doesn't happen near enough but yeah I, I get an idea the idea may take seven years to flesh out but it's you know all part of it i guess yeah which is really six weeks in musician time right <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you're, you're right on it <laughs> Let's let's talk about some of the tunes. These are original tunes that you wrote. The end of the world. I really love your problem with dating is that you're too honest. Yeah, I think that um, 
I mean, that goes either way. It's not, you know, I hate for it to be so uh, sexist, but, you know, I have to sing it from a man's point of view. All the pretty girls I ever dated said I talk too much about the end of the world. I don't pay attention to the clothes they wear. For a song. I'm Carrie Ray, and lately 
I've been thinking a lot about love. Now, thinking about love is a far cry from the all-consuming, trembling, breathtaking experience that is being in romantic love. And it's not even akin to the warm, brother-and-sisterly agape sort that I learned about in Sunday school. It's just thinking, which uses your mind, not your heart. And everyone knows you can't love with your mind. Or can you? For years, experts have worked to pin down the mix of science and sorcery that amounts to falling in love. Some assert that it's merely chemistry and timing. Others tiptoe in the realm of soulmates and split-aparts, destinies and the meant-to-bes. I'm not really sure what the answer is, and the older I get, the more okay I am with not having the answer. About this and a myriad of other topics, being in the question is much more fun. So I want to play with this concept of love for a bit as it relates to music. What constitutes music you love and music you hate? And is it worse to hate a piece of music or be indifferent about it? At least if you hate something, it's commanded a response, and a passionate one at that. At least its creator has struck a nerve of some sort. And what of the music that you love? I'm guessing you love different artists, albums, and songs for different reasons. For example, I love the Lucinda Williams song, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road, for the way it connects me to my childhood. I love the Jason Isbell song, Elephant, for the masterful way it moves me emotionally by telling the stories around a story instead of the story itself. I love the Brandy Carlisle song, The Eye, for the tight and interesting use of vocal harmony. And I love my pal Chris Wolf's song, Spotless, because it rings all my bells around clever wordplay. In fact, if I sit with it for a minute, I can likely tell you the reason for loving any song I love. With a little focus, I bet you can too. But sometimes it seems that my own songs can be the hardest to love. Maybe I'm too close to them. Maybe some are just not that lovable. If you are consistently working the craft of songwriting, you will write bad, unlovable songs. In fact, a long time ago, I made it a personal rule to finish every song, even if, and especially if, I think it's a stinker. Why? Because choosing to fall in love with a bad song means you will stay in relationship with it and learn its lesson. At best, it will have elements that you can incorporate into later works, or may plant a seed of an idea that leads to something really great. And at the very least, it's practice working the craft. And it's that work that sharpens you, expands you. This is not a concept that is singular to writing. Here's what painter Christine Moran had to say about bad work. I would say out of all of the paintings I make every year, only a few stand out as truly good. And I think this is true of most artists, historically and contemporary alike. It takes many bad paintings to get to the one good painting. As a young man, my dad played in his share of Euchre tournaments. For those of you non-Hoosiers listening, that's a card game, somewhat akin to hearts or spades, where players try to call and win hands. And when they fail, it's referred to as getting euchred. In these contests, all parts of a player's performance were tracked. Over time, he noticed something that winners had in common besides winning. They often were also the player who had been euchred the most. Not every song will be the love of your creative life. That's okay. 
Press forward anyway. Find ways to love them all, even if you feel you're sitting in a growing pile of self-made creative refuse. Bad songs don't make you a failure. Quite the contrary. They might just make you a winner. I'm Carrie Ray, wishing you Godspeed and hoping you'll join me next time on For a Song. If you have ideas, questions, or topics you would like to have covered on For a Song, please send them along. You can reach me via the contact page of my website, carryray.com. That's C-A-R-I-R-A-Y.com. Thanks for listening. On Saturday, March 5th at 7.30 p.m., the Brown County Playhouse presents one of our most anticipated music events of the year, the Brown County Music Celebration. Now in its fourth year, this event showcases members of the local music scene live on the Playhouse stage, and each year one lucky musician receives the Brown County Music Celebration's Lifetime Achievement Award. This year's recipient is woodwind player and big band leader, Mr. Mel Chance. And the Playhouse will be swinging to the sounds of Mel's band, The Notables. Dancing shoes are recommended. Also on the bill are local American Roots favorites, John Boyer and Jamie Hood, also known as the Hammer and the Hatchet. Plus, The Misfits, featuring Lou Stant, Lee Terrell, and Mel Chance. Mel was featured on episode 21 of the Brown County Hour back in December 2013. You can stream that episode on our website, browncountyhour.com. Guitarist Jeff Foster will once again emcee the event and perform solo guitar music between acts. For more information, visit the Future Shows page at browncountyplayhouse.org. The National Maple Syrup Festival will take place at Brown County State Park on March 5th and 6th. This is the second year for this event, and it just gets bigger and better every year. There will be reenactments of Native American and French colonial maple sugaring and the Sweet Victory National Recipe Contest. Come and see how maple syrup is made and enjoy the taste of early spring at this exciting national event. Please join us on Saturday and Sunday, March 5th and 6th for the National Maple Syrup Festival. And now station identification. Support for WFHB and the Brown County Hour is brought to you by Plum Creek Antiques, located at the intersection of 135 and 45 in downtown Bean Blossom, where visitors can buy, sell, or trade most anything. More information is available by calling 812-988-6268. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org. In this segment, Jeff Tryon tells the story about the man who logged Brown County. Patricia Kronke discusses the Gay-Straight Alliance at Brown County High School, and we'll listen to another Travers Marks tune, Tennessee Redbud. 
This is My Brown County with Jeff Tryon. The more I thought about what really makes Brown County Brown County, the more I began to realize how we each have our own particular Brown County. In a way, Brown County is what we each bring to it, what we find there for our own, what we each make of it. No one else sees it probably in the same exact way that I do. That's what makes it my Brown County. The man who logged Brown County. The great dark trees of the big woods stood all around the house, and beyond them were other trees, and beyond them were more trees. As far as a man could go to the north in a day or a week or a whole month, there was nothing but woods. There were no houses, there were no roads, there were no people. There were only the trees and the wild animals who had their homes among them. To the east of the little log house and to the west there were miles upon miles of trees and only a few little log houses scattered far apart in the edge of the big woods. Laura Ingalls Wilder, Little House in the Big Woods. When European settlers first came to Indiana, it was almost completely covered with old-growth virgin forest. Both the hills and valleys of Brown County were thickly covered with trees described as more than six feet in diameter, and their leafy tops were so interlaced that the sun never struck the ground. But the early settlers did not see it as some kind of paradise. It seemed like a country where nature was arrayed against them, according to early accounts. Pioneer settlers described tall trees that covered the whole country with... Let me try again. Pioneer settlers described tall trees that covered the whole country with their wide-spreading branches descending to the ground, and the shrubbery below arose and united with the branches of the trees. The county was covered with a heavy growth of oak, poplar, ash, maple, sycamore, beech, walnut, elm, and hickory, with spicebrush and grapevines and undergrowth forming an almost impenetrable tangle. This wilderness was unknown even to the Indians, except for occasional straggling bands of hunters or war parties bound from the villages on the upper Wabash to the Kentucky River. The first wave of settlers were mostly transients. They squatted on unsold lands, built cabins, cleared a few acres of corn and vegetables, and subsisted largely on wild animals. Most of what they had, they got or made from the forest. As the country became settled, these frontiersmen would sell out to the next wave of settlers and move farther out into the wilderness. The first settlements were along the forested river valleys where transportation was easiest. Brown County's population and economy boomed as the second wave of settlers cleared the forest, then declined as they moved on, leaving ecological disaster in their wake. The first railroad in Indiana, from Madison to Columbus, was built in 1844 and extended to Indianapolis a couple of years later. This provided a way to ship logs, wood products, tan hides, or whatever by train to Madison and then on to wherever. By the 1860s, steam-powered sawmills were available, and about half of the state's forests had been burned, cleared, and or farmed. There had been logging all along, but the power of steam really started expanding the reach of the industry. By the mid-1870s, Indiana was still 40% timber covered, but by 1900, most of the state's forests had been cut as large tracts of wooded land were converted to fields 
for agricultural crops. Actually, cutting down the great forest was not primarily accomplished by settlers, but by land and lumber barons in the post-Civil War boom, especially from 1879 to 1887. And it was primarily one man, a man named John A. McGregor, who was responsible for the logging of Brown County, for setting in motion an industrial pillage that nearly destroyed it, that changed it forever. McGregor arrived in 1879 and immediately began to purchase large tracts of land, which was the usual way of obtaining the timber located on the land. Over the next 10 years, he purchased over 7,000 acres and obtained logging rights to more. He was said to have bought land for 4 or $5 an acre, logged it, and then sold it for $6 an acre. McGregor's primary business was making barrels. He was known as the Stave King. A stave is the upright wooden component of a wooden barrel. In those days, wooden barrels were the way almost everything was transported, and white oak was the most popular wood due to its tendency to seal itself when containing liquids. By 1880, McGregor employed about 200 workers at his mill, which featured a steam-powered barrel stave maker. It shipped 6 million barrel staves and 2 million board feet of lumber out of Brown County Forests every year. With his main office in Columbus, McGregor's business helped spark an economic boom in both Brown County and Bartholomew County. By 1888, they were shipping 340 railcar loads of stays from Columbus every year. McGregor was popular locally because he provided work for local farmers during the winter months, when his workforce could balloon to 500. McGregor's success encouraged others, among them William Taggart, who established the Taggart Mill in Hamlin Township around 1879. The mill cut around 100,000 board feet annually and employed six people. It was one of seven such mills located in Brown County by the 1880 census, as ever more timber was cut. Other early Brown County industries were also tree-intensive. There were eight tanneries in the county by 1850 because of the abundance of chestnut oak, the bark of which was preferred for tanning hides. The James Parmalee Tannery near Georgetown, now Bean Blossom, used as much as 2,000 cords of chestnut bark a year tanning hides, and more chestnut oak bark was shipped out of the county for the same purpose. Parmalee died in 1872, but the tannery, which had won state, national, and international awards, continued until 1879. By about 1887, the timber in Brown County was exhausted, and McGregor left for southern Illinois, with most of the county cleared of trees. Just think of it. They cut nearly every tree in Brown County, huge six-foot diameter virgin trees, and they did it all pretty much by hand axes and cross-cut saws with the help of draft animals. By the 1890s, the once dense forest cover was substantially depleted and the timber-based economy began to slacken. After the trees were removed, the hillsides quickly eroded. The landowners in the five townships of Washington, Hamlin, Jackson, Van Buren, and Johnson, mostly still farmers, at first tried to compensate by tilling more of the denuded hills. They grew corn, wheat, sorghum, and tobacco. With the removal of the trees, the thick humus ground cover and the plowing of the grass-covered sod, erosion became pronounced on the hillsides. The thin topsoil slid into the creeks. 
Brown County's population decreased by 25% between 1890 and 1910, due largely to an agricultural depression and the erosion of fertile soils from lumbering. Some lumbering continued in Brown County into the 20th century. Smaller trees were cut for railroad cross ties or for tanning and cordwood also continued to be cut as a source of income. By the early 20th century, farming was becoming unprofitable and many of the county's rural residents began to leave. Those who remained continued as subsistence farmers. Of course, it wasn't McGregor alone who logged Brown County. He's just the most glaring example of what can go wrong when unbridled capital intersects the frontier mentality. It was, after all, what Twain called the Gilded Age, a time when the titans of capital, the trusts, battled for supremacy. Brown County's population hit a peak in the decade of the 1880s to 1890s of about 10,000 people, a level it would not reach again until the 1970s. The logging business was the economic engine that behind that population boom. By the 1930s, there were only about 5,000 people here. Hastening and increasing that decline was the watershed depression of 1893, which changed the nation's economy, politics, and set off far-reaching social and intellectual developments. And Brown County would also undergo radical changes in order to survive the twin curses of economic depression and the yellow ditch erosion, the disastrous after-effects of poor logging practices on a massive scale. So it's my pleasure to introduce Patricia Cronkey. And uh, Patricia, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I, I'm originally from a, a small town in Michigan, so I'm a Midwesterner by birth. But I lived, I consider myself an East Coast girl. I lived uh, for 10 years in Manhattan and worked at Rutgers University for 10 years in New Jersey. And then lived in Vermont and worked as the dean of admissions at in the Vermont State College system. Well, I, I know you that you're involved in the literacy co coalition here in Brown County, uh, amongst many other things. But uh, today we're talking about the Brown County Gay and Straight Alliance, mm -hmm. which you are involved in. Tell tell us about that program. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, a student approached myself and another teacher the end of the school year last year. I've kind of gotten a reputation for being sort of the go-to person who says, Any, you can make anything happen. Uh, so the student actually had already contacted Mr. Killinger, the principal okay. of the high school, and asked him, said, you know, we need a gay-straight alliance here. And Mr. Killinger immediately said, absolutely. Excellent. And he did all sort of the footwork on it, got all the approvals and, and, and everything. And uh, the other person, aside from myself, who is, I'm the community advisor for the group. The teacher who is the advisor is uh, Eric Fole, who's an English teacher at the school. There are a lot of students in Brown, Heidi, Brown County High School who are either out, right, Um they are, we have uh, a handful who are struggling with their gender. We have uh, a lot of students who are being, who uh, need to, to remain closeted because of family reasons. Mm. 
And so we wanted to make sure that there was a safe place, a safe, some kind of safe environment for these students to, to feel comfortable struggling with whatever they're struggling with. So basically, this is a homegrown, organic, uh, local group of people just getting together trying to work the, the bugs out of their lives and the complexities of being gay in straight America. Exactly. And this group, what's really fantastic, is that there are just as many straight kids, students who self-identify as straight, Right. Uh, who are participating? I mean, they want to support their friends. Yeah, they understand. They, they understand what their friends are going through. They see uh, the pain that they're that they're experiencing, and they want to help. They want to help them, and also, you know, just to have a good time together with people who share. You know, who have a commonality. Yeah. Um, so. Well, and how wonderful it is that uh, the times have evolved where these kids can have a voice. That's that's huge. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting when we first put the signs up at the school about the first couple of meetings. We were noticing that people were taking them down, and we thought we assumed it was students that were taking it down. But what we found out is that there were teachers who were taking them down, oh. uh, which is fine. You know, I mean, everybody is entitled to their own. People have very strong faith issues. You know, things yeah. that, that we respect that. Evolution travels at its own speed. It does travel at its own speed. And we've seen some pretty rapid changes recently that I'm sure not a lot of people have caught up with. That's that's very, very true. And so as a member of the community, I mean, I, I self-identify as Patricia. That is that is that is who I am. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm my partner teaches uh, my partner Katie Lane teaches at the high school. She teaches environmental science, um, and uh, you know I mean I went through a lifetime of of being involved with men, and I met her, and I was like oh. Wow, who would have thought the love of my life would be this woman? And so in my own my own um, journey with this, I understand, you know, what other right. students go what what students go what students go through with this. Well, you bring personal experience to Exactly. The table. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I don't I don't see myself as a label and you know, it's just it's just put something good into the world. That's all that matters to me, right? I think that's absolutely excellent. Well, thank you so very much for coming in and talking about this. This is an important topic, and uh, I'm just glad to see this happening in our local high school. Well, thank you very much for having me to talk about this, because it's, it's awesome. <laughs> well, at least you guys will know that it's a true story. Okay. Okay. <laughs> hey, Trav, where were you? I was in a parking lot in North Carolina, walking around half out of my mind. Fella come up to me with a hair color red, come up to me, and this is what he said. Me and my brother from East Tennessee, come up here to get some LSD. Oh man, I don't know what it is you're talking about. I've been here near all day, I heard nobody once say Anything about nothing, so be on the lookout for the D.E.A.
my brother from East Tennessee Come up here to get some LSD Well, we brought along the trade Yeah, we brought along some weed Tennessee red bud Tennessee's finest kind Tennessee red Tennessee red bud Tennessee high as a mountain sky Tennessee high on the mountain side station identification. Support for WFHB in the Brown County Hour is brought to you by Plum Creek Antiques, located at the intersection of 135 and 45 in downtown Bean Blossom, where visitors can buy, sell, or trade most anything. More information is available by calling 812-988-6268. 
You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. In the final portion of the show, Steve Grubb shares his extensive knowledge about chestnut trees. We have a tale of love and romance from Dave Seastrom. Rick Fedick launches a new program to prevent loneliness. And we'll close with the Travers Marks original, Piccolo Road. It's my pleasure to introduce Steve Grubbs, and he's going to speak tonight about the American chestnut. Hi, Steve. Thanks for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. So where do we begin? American chestnut, once the mightiest tree in the forest. Many people, the old timers called it the redwood of the east. It could achieve enormous proportions uh, when it grew in the proper growing sites. The American chestnut was the big dog of the eastern forest, particularly through the Appalachian Mountains. It ranged into the Ohio River Valley and into southern Indiana. No tree created greater mass, that means nut production. Wildlife relied on it very heavily. American Indians knew it well. They would uh, gather it. That was, uh, that was your winter hunger food you could survive on that. American pioneers, uh, as they were pushing the frontier west, uh, many of those people were in starvation mode until they established crops, so they were as dependent as the wildlife Native Americans were. But the blight changed all of that. Yes, the epicenter of the blight was the New York Botanical Gardens. The Chinese chestnut tree was introduced as a yard tree, an ornamental tree. had nut production, but it was on a much smaller scale. So it was popularized to bringing in the Chinese chestnut because it was something everybody could grow in their yards. They were introduced, and the New York Botanical Gardens had stately, grand-sized American chestnuts that were just iconic in the sense that uh, everybody always expected to see the incredible shade patterns. These trees could get so big they could create an acre of shade uh, when they were openly grown. The Chinese chestnuts introduced the blight. Uh, Once introduced, it raged. It radiated out through the range of the chestnuts in the east. Southern Indiana would would have been one of the last regions for the uh, transmission of the blight. Uh, The American chestnut was dying out in southern Indiana in the 1930s, whereas it started about 1900 in the east. The tree was so important, not only for wildlife and human food. When you talk about tannic acid for tanning, it was the chestnut tree that was used. It had the highest levels of tannins. Uh, when you talk about split rail fences, that was preferred wood because it was so straight grained and you could pop it really easily and get a nice long runs. At the time of the establishment of the REMCs, there was a lot of sweat equity that was involved of uh, the rural property owners, the farmers, to extend the electric lines to electrify the rural areas and what they were doing was cutting pole timber. The farmers of Jackson County were uh, cutting dead standing chestnut trees. Chestnut is about one of the most rot resistant trees there is so even though a fungal blight wiped it out you had standing dead chestnut trees where the wood was still good and they were cutting pole 
timber to use as the poles for the electrification mm. of the rural areas. Jackson County RMC removed their last chestnut pole 10 years ago. Wow. From the 1930s. That chestnut tree would have died in the 30s. It would have been cut and put in the ground to run electric wires on in about 1940 or 41. So that was probably 65 years that tree was in the ground. And it was a little decayed, but it still it still was useful. Wow. There are woodworkers that will just do anything to get chestnut wood because being rot resistant, you do find chestnut wood still in paneling houses. It was used for shake shingles. It was so easy to, to work. I remember one, reading one article that said many of the Appalachian communities uh, were so dependent upon the chestnut tree for so many different reasons that the death of the chestnuts contributed to the demise of the well-being of many of the Appalachian communities. The demise of the chestnut caused a lot of science people that got involved to start pondering this issue. We've seen other great American tree species wiped out by fungal blights in the American elm and now the American butternut. The American Chestnut Foundation was founded in the late 1970s by a group of dedicated people that wanted to find a way to restore the American chestnut tree to the landscape. It's a not-for-profit organization. It's gained a lot of ground in the last 33 years. Many universities are contributing to the research. Breeding lines have been established trying to find blight-resistant trees. And the Indiana chapter of the American Foundation is, is very involved in the restoration work. There are native survivor stock of American chestnuts that mm-hmm. have survived in a few places. So the scientists have tried to find the strongest trees. They have been crossbred with Chinese chestnut because the Chinese chestnut carries blight resistance. So endless breeding lines were established. Once they become mature enough to propagate nuts, the first generation of 50-50 American chestnut, Chinese chestnut, they selected out those trees from the breeding lines that seem to have the strongest characteristics of American chestnut. Those 50-50 crosses were then crossed with other strong lines to get three-fourths American chestnut, one-fourth Chinese chestnut. The potential blight-resistant breeding lines are 15 sixteenths American chestnut, 1 16th Chinese chestnut. And they're looking for those that show the strongest characteristics, particularly in nut production. And the whole intent is to breed in blight resistance. So when you have a 15 16th American chestnut and 1 16th Chinese chestnut, is the characteristic of the tree of the nut absolutely American chestnut? Or is it... Is it is That's it, what they're breeding for. This is some pretty exciting information in regards to something that was lost that is now coming back. Yes, it's, I mean, a lot of people have given up on seeing it back in the landscape. Of course, the old timers were heartbroken when they lost their chestnuts. Perhaps someday our grandchildren will see them. That's the idea. Yeah. For me, the uh, I share the goals of the American Chestnut Foundation. I hope in my lifetime I can help be responsible for restoring it to the landscape. The environmental education aspect is equally important because this was, at least in the American, the Eastern American forest, people of three generations ago, yeah, they all knew the chestnut. We don't. Here's to someday they will again. Thank you so much for coming in, Steve. My pleasure. February is a cold and lonely month out here in the hinterlands. We're deep in the heart of winter, so naturally our thoughts turn to romance. 
It seems that the rest of the world feels the same way, because we celebrate love and romance on the 14th of this month. This holiday is known to all of us as St. Valentine's Day. I suppose the landscape for finding true love has changed with the introduction of internet dating sites. Nowadays, you type some data, true or not, into your computer, insert a photo from 20 years ago, hit the submit button, and hope for the best. It's my understanding that the dating sites are tailored to every interest and pursuit. Gardeners can find gardeners, dog lovers can find dog lovers, and the religious can all join hands and worship together. To an old school fellow like me, this seems almost like cheating. Back in my day, we had to actually meet someone in order to ask them out. That is, except for the well-intended meddling of friends, better known as the blind date. Personally, I've only been on one blind date, and I'd rather not talk about it. Living out in the middle of nowhere doesn't make it easy to find the person of your dreams. When I was single, I had to make a concerted effort to go to places where other people gather. I'm not particularly religious, and I don't like to dance, so two of the standard pathways didn't work for me. Fortunately, I do enjoy live music, and in order to secure a mate, I combed the venues in the pursuit of happiness. Mostly I found beer, which is okay because the right amount of beer can make you happy, but it's not the same thing as going out on a date. As a hetero male, I realized that over half of the population is female, so this put the odds in my favor. Still, the age-old quandary of finding the person that's right for you, and even harder, finding another person who feels the same way. Having said all of that, there are advantages to living at the end of a long driveway in the middle of the woods. More winters ago than I care to remember, there was a knock at my door. I was out working the shop, and across the drive I saw an attractive FedEx courier standing at my front door. My daughter answered the knock and informed this young lady that her daddy told her to never sign for anything. This must have been frustrating for her. The FedEx couriers I see are always in a hurry and my daughter wasn't making it easy for her to complete her task. Sensing that my presence was necessary, I walked across the drive and asked if I could be of assistance. The young lady handed me a package and smiled as I signed for it. There was a moment of hesitation, and she got into her truck and attempted to drive away. As she pulled out, my dog ran in front of her van. This caused her to come to a complete stop. I explained that this was his way of having fun, and not to worry because he's an expert at this game and you won't run him over. Just then, she looked at me and said, You wouldn't happen to be single, would you? I smiled in response and said that in fact I was. She looked at her watch, jumped out of her van, saying that she had just enough time for a break. We walked to my shop, and I showed her some jewelry that I was making. I figured if this didn't scare her off, we might have something. At that point, I was working on a line of unusual bolo ties, and as I remember, she said, weird is good, or, or something to that effect. When she was back in her van, she wrote down her telephone number and left me in a cloud of dust as she pulled away with my dog running ahead of her. This was a first for me, and I wasn't sure what to make of this experience. Still, I thought she was friendly and good-looking, and she did have the cutest little steel-toed boots I'd ever seen. I called her during a raging thunderstorm, and we could barely hear one another, but somehow we managed to set up our first date. That was 22 years ago, and today we're still together. I guess I'm saying you never know where or when you will find love. 
Whether it's on the internet or at the end of a long driveway in the middle of the woods, what really matters is keeping your eyes open. Happy St. Valentine's Day, everyone. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. This being our February show, I'd like to give a holler out to all of our local bow hunters. Not our wildlife hunters, but the eager hunters that want to shoot Cupid's arrow into a two-legged deer. Ha ha ha! It's Valentine's Day on February 14th. We're interested in starting a local website called Cuddle Buddies. For any Brown County or nearby singles interested in occasional casual companionship, imagine an unexpected open evening or an evening pre-planned, nothing planned evening. There's someone you've conversed with via Cuddle Buddies and you've discovered that you have lots in common. You contact them and meet up for the evening. A comforter on the couch, TV or movie, music, or perhaps a fun game, pizza or popcorn. This is like other websites, except everyone lives within 15 minutes or so from each other so that travel is quick and easy. Sign up is free, but for $20, you can get a nice comfy blanket with a sketch of two people sitting on a couch together, sharing a bowl of popcorn that's nestled into their lap. Cupid's little arrow may or may not strike, but you'll have the opportunity to share some evenings with some hopefully developing good friendships with some good Brown County folks. Contact us at browncountyhour.com. Think about it. Uh, this is Piccolo Road. I knew this night have to come from destiny. I can't run. Here you are with your new man. He tags along like Oliver and Stan. But for every Like some kind of debris, leave me with none.
but for kind of like that title i mean because you could pick the high road and right. most you know most people right. kind of shoot for that but you right. you have chosen the other direction you want to talk about that well it's also a word play on the on the word piccolo yeah. as in like a, a piccolo right okay so i'm not really being definitive about whether i'm saying it's you know just this road called piccolo road <laughs> that i'm going down or is it time to pick the low road yeah you know what, though? I think that's cool, because as you were saying that, like, it never occurred to me as I was listening to that song that he was saying pick a low road. I thought it was pick a low road like the instrument, which which kind of brings me to uh, something interesting, which it I worked. think so. Well, it's yeah, it's a great <laughs> it's a great tool, I think, for songwriters to use. You can kind of leave that ambiguity in there and then let people kind of make up their own story, which I think great songs really do. Well, uh, kind of like a double entendre, only yeah. different. Absolutely. But the same. But yeah. but a little different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like a piccolo. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for tuning in to episode 47 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville, and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. This show was produced by Jeff Foster, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Carrie Ray, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You've been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County home.